Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Thanks, Grant. Good morning, everyone, again. Really glad that you're joining us here this morning, and a huge hello again to the many of you watching and listening online, no matter where you might be today. Well, it's less than two weeks till Christmas, and the question we always ask at this time of year is, uh, have you got your shopping done yet? Uh, I was at the mall starting a little late this year, two weeks ago. It was a Friday. And in the middle of the insanity of that mall, even during the day, I, I just took a break with my daughter. I had Emma with me, and, and I just sat on one of those chairs in the middle of the mall, and I people watched. Anyone done that before? And so I was sitting there watching the hustle and bustle of all these people walking by me. But then suddenly something happened. As I was sitting there with my four-and-a-half-month-old daughter, Emma, and we were just hanging out together, this woman suddenly came out of a store, and I didn't feel right about her. I held Emma closer to me, and I watched her like an eagle because I was concerned. She didn't seem right. Suddenly, she seemed to me detached, and then she got agitated, and then she started walking back and forth, pacing back and forth, and I wasn't sure if there was a mental issue, an emotional issue. I I was watching like something really wrong was going to go down right in the middle of this mall. Suddenly, she stopped, and she turned, and she looked right at me. I held my daughter closer, and she started walking right towards me. I was preparing to defend my daughter. I had no clue what was going on. And she came close to me and then said these words. Ready? Have you seen my children? Immediately, as a new parent, I knew the fear that was going on. This woman was looking for her children, not one, but two, and couldn't find them. I said, well, what do they look like? And she said, well, they're this and that. They were tweens. They were under 12 years old, and she was frustrated and scared. And and I said, well, why don't you try the store uh, next door, and I'll I'll keep looking. And I was prepared to get security. And and so she goes, and as she leaves and looks again, I'm looking around, and suddenly I'm in front of Pottery Barn. I see on the second level this young little blonde girl coming down. I said, oh, I mean, that's got to be her. That's the description. But before Before I could get security or the mother, the mother comes back and sees her. And you know what's about to happen, right? She focuses in. The daughter comes like nothing's going on at all. And there's that yelling moment where she's half yelling, but she's so relieved her daughter's alive. So they interact and it ends with, go get your brother. And she sits down beside me. I can see the adrenaline still rushing in her body. She's on the verge of crying. She's got her her bags. My mother-in-law came out afterwards, and I just looked at her and said, Hey, Merry Christmas to you. God bless you. She sort of grunted back at me. But I stopped and thought about that. Among not hundreds, but actually thousands of people, this woman, for only a few minutes, was desperate. She felt alone. She was afraid. She was scared. Everything now was not in control. And she desired one thing above all of her. She desired relief. She was desperate for that situation to be relieved. And she was absolutely panicked. I thought about that experience. And I thought, what a brilliant picture of many of us sitting and watching and listening online. A Christian seeker, non-seeker. 
How many of us truly, if we described our innermost walk right now, was be desperate or alone or afraid or scared or out of control, desiring relief, desperate relief from something? And yet, unlike that woman, most of us spend much of our even Christian life pacing back and forth, acting agitated and disconnected, desiring relief, but never stopping and looking someone in the eye, let alone the living God, and saying to him or to others, please, I need relief now. When I thought about that experience, I said, what a fitting way to start and end this series Because this is exactly what James is going to do as he ends this sort of book he wrote to us called, uh, you know, the book of James, what we've called A Normal Christian Life. This is a brilliant description of what James is going to command us to do. He's going to command us to stop in desperation and look for relief. If you have a Bible, you can turn to James chapter 5, but right at the end, and hear the word of God today. Be open to what God is trying to say to you today. Like I said, James is bringing his letter to a close and flowing out of last week, we talked about the issue of facing suffering of all kinds and James speaks one more time into that tough reality. As we, and he has already shared, we are called, no, no, we are actually challenged not to be consumed with anger or stoic resignation when we suffer, but instead as Christians, we are called to action both personally and communally. And so as James closes this letter, not only does he summarize here, but he invites us one last time to the table. Really, these last few words he's about to share are a plea, one more cry for a normal Christian life, or maybe we should say a normal Christian church. The one theme, uh, the one path, the one door we must walk through is found, he says, in the act of prayer. The call to prayer is in every verse we're going to read today. And it's not just prayer in, oh God, bless my food. No, it's much more than that. It is a prayer that leads to healing. But before we can get to prayer and healing and, and God's will, let's ask the question that we probably all need to think about before we get here. Why is our world so full of suffering? Why is our world so marked by brokenness? I mean, let's all be honest, we live in a world that is full of it. Failed dreams and the untouched and the unwanted are all around us. There is sickness, disease, and war, and regret, regret, question, injustice. The pain of brokenness actually begins to form the great pools in which people find belief in God so difficult, either they question his existence or they outright reject his existence. Suffering takes the twisted form of pain, distress, anxiety, and happiness, the lack of basic necessities, and is experienced in everything that we are as humans, physical, emotional, mental, sexual, spiritual, all of it. I was talking to Wayne last week, and he reminded me of a past conversation we had in 2007 on this issue of suffering. He reminded me that there are seven reasons why all of us suffer. Think about it. There are seven honest reasons. Here's the first one. Sin. When you and I choose, willfully or not, to break the heart of God and break the law of God, it brings suffering. Murder, lying, stealing, adultery, not even taking a Sabbath, all of it will bring harm against yourself, others, and God. That is why suffering is in this world. Trust me. There's another reason why we suffer, and it's this. It's the sin of others. We don't live in a little bubble that we can control, and the cost, listen, the cost of free will is mutual suffering. 
Not one of us wants God ever to take away our free will, but then we turn around and say, oh God, why do you let evil happen in the world so much? And he says, but you wanted free will, and the cost of free will is mutual suffering, our sin, others' sin. There's a third reason. His name is Lucifer. Satan, he is a sentient, real being who wanted God's throne and was thrown out. He brings suffering on a global scale that we will only understand from eternity, but also his minions oppress and inhabit many, and it brings terrible darkness among the human population. The fourth reason why we suffer is the exact opposite. It's obedience. When you obey God, you will suffer for it. And some of you that have, no. The fifth reason why we suffer is the obedience of others. When others that you're connected to choose to obey God, because you're connected to them, you also may suffer. The sixth reason, which isn't popular among most of us, especially North Americans, is for God's glory. In very specific times in Scripture, it says that God allows illness or a terrible situation for his own glory. Read the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was dying. Mary and Martha say, Jesus, oh great healer, Messiah, come, come heal our brother. And he delays himself on purpose. Lazarus dies, is stinking in a tomb for four days. Then Jesus shows up and says, now they will believe, Lord, and raises him from the dead. The seventh reason why we suffer, here it is, a huge question mark. I don't have all the answers. None of us have all the answers. And sometimes we just don't know why we suffer, but we do. And so into that whirlwind of question and pain, God now at this moment speaks with such clarity and such power and such strong direction. His voice this morning must be heard above, above the din of all other voices. He says to us now, for, for this time, at this Christmas season, listen, James chapter 5 verse 13, is any of you, is any of you in trouble? He or she must pray. James starts with trouble. It's the same word as suffering, to have misfortune in your life. And as we've learned again and again in this series, trials could be social, economic, physical, sin, the demonic, losing a job, war or sickness, family breakdown, unmet expectations, persecution for the faith, midlife crisis, fill in the blank. And what does James say? Does he say, we'll just run from it? Just, just run away and escape, and it's all going to be okay. Does he say, well, just deal with it yourself. Pull up your bootstraps as a good Christian and just suck it up. No. Maybe he says, just ignore it. No, he says, you should pray. Which translates, by the way, you must keep on praying. It's not a one-shot deal. It's continual. It's time-consuming. It's a constant posture before the only one that can give us all that is needed flowing out of last week, and hear this closely, please, this morning. One wrote these words, James is not telling us to pray for the removal of the cause of trouble as much for the strength to endure the troublesome situation. How many times do we pray, oh God, just give me relief from the situation? James teaches us the opposite. Oh God, help me to be a faithful Christian during the situation. But then James sort of flips the coin and says, is any of you happy? Uh, let him sing songs of praise. When I hear the word happy, it seems to be one thing, but I know in my soul it has to be another. 
Happiness in Scripture is much more than superficial happiness that's based on circumstances, things, good health, or great food. It's unnatural joy. It's unusual hope, no matter the circumstances. One penned it this way. James is referring to the believer who, through prayer, can be in good spirits when conditions are difficult because of a deep-seated trust in the trustworthiness of God. He's saying this, the real call for us as Christians during suffering is to pray for patience and joy and hope that are not natural. And the outflow of real joy and real hope, he says, is one thing, worship. James is basically saying to us, even at the 909 service this morning, come on out, break out in song. Whether you can sing or not is not even the point. Sing songs of praise. It's where we get our word psalm from. It originally meant just play the harp. This is musical worship. Songs of praise are always connected to biblical joy. In every great move of God in history, there is a new love for singing. All the style and preference and ability issues go out the window. You see, singing is really a form of prayer. Think on Paul and Silas's experience. They had just been beaten terribly, thrown in jail. They should have been bitter and angry and depressed. They had just helped some little girl out who was spiritually in bondage, and this is what they get. But watch what happens with them. It's in Acts 16. The joy, it says the crowd joined the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. Think about the fear of that situation. After they had been severely flogged, severely flogged. They had the tar kicked out of them. They're thrown into prison. Later it says, upon receiving such orders, he now put them in the inner cell, the worst part in the prison, and fastened their feet with stocks. They're bleeding, they're disoriented, they're in the worst part of the prison, and now they're basically handcuffed in an ancient way. And it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were singing uh, and praying and singing hymns to God, and other prisoners were listening to them. Wouldn't you be? Prayer and singing are both essential for the spiritual strength of those going through life. And like I preached last week, it is unnatural joy and unnatural patience that friends and family and enemies and co-workers will watch, and they'll listen, and, and they'll honestly say, what is your deal? You should be bitter. Your life circumstance is so terrible, you have every right to be and you're going to say, well, I know, but it's not me, by the way. It's the one I know. It doesn't even make sense to me sometimes. But then James moves us to see another thing. Listen closely. He attacks, basically, the North American church view. It's just like me and Jesus, my relationship with God alone. He says when we become Christians, we join a family, a body of Christ. It is a spiritual family. And he says we need each other. We need the faith of the community, the gifts of the community. We need the acts of the church. And so James steps out again and points us to think beyond our personal little walk with God to understand that we are corporately now involved in a family. And James says, ready, without hesitation, this question. Is any of you sick? Is anyone among us in the church sick? When I used to read this, I would always think of the physical, from colds to cancer. The images of hospitals came to my mind. But I've now learned that sick in Greek means something much more. It just means weakness. Does anyone have a personal incapacity, a limitation, or a weakness? It has a broad meaning, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, sexual. The list goes on from illness to mental illness to the sin that will not go away to a cold heart to the presence of evil. 
One of the greatest examples of weakness is when a Christian has been defeated in spiritual battle, has lost the ability to endure during suffering. One wrote this, they are fallen warriors, they are exhausted Christians, weary Christians, depressed Christians, they're defeated Christians. So as followers of Jesus during trouble, one's called to pray personally. But now James says that if you are weak, the sick among us are actually to call on others to minister into their situations. Yet in the West, actually let me go deeper, here at Crothers Creek, much of the time, this is where we start shutting down as I'm speaking. We believe that weakness and sin and frailty need to be covered and hidden or must be cloaked because we need to keep up appearances in church, that we're just fine and we're confident, good Christians, or here's the best one I hear all the time, oh, I didn't want to burden you. And every time we do this, every time we do this, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity is grieved. Heaven weeps and the work of the kingdom of God, that is the reign and rule of God in our lives, in this church, and in our families is thwarted. James is about to say to any followers here, you don't get to do that here anymore. You must drop your pride In a place of genuine humility, you need to make the ask, just like that woman in the mall. It's not up to the leadership to come to you. Your will matters. Your willingness to submit to the leadership and say yes is key. It must be volitional. Come to your shepherds, he's about to say, and ask them to intercede on your behalf for your well-being. The sick, he says, the weak among us, which is most, James says, should call on the elders of the church. To pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Call upon leaders in the church, he says, and then two actions will happen. They will pray and they will anoint you with oil. Okay, John, I get the prayer deal, but seriously, seriously, it's 2009, right? What's the deal with oil? I mean, does it need to be special oil all the way from the Holy Land? Does it need to be like extra, extra, extra virgin oil to work? Some of you are thinking, you're not going to put butter or Crisco on my head and rub it, are you? Anyone among us right now who's visiting for the first time is like, oh my gosh, it's a butter cult. I, I need to get out. They're going to slather me. I don't understand. <laughs> just, just let me explain. In ancient times, oil was used as medicine. You can actually read about that in the story of the Good Samaritan. But that's not what's being talked about here at all. Oil was and is a spiritual sign which has both supernatural and symbolic elements, when dedicated and used for God. Here's our lesson today. It doesn't matter the type of oil. Listen, it's supernatural in the sense that when an object's dedicated to God, it actually can become a conduit for spiritual power. A friend of mine who's a prof wrote it this way. He said, look, such things like material objects, buildings, or rituals can be dedicated and thus convey the power of God if dedicated to him or the power of Satan if dedicated to him. In dedications and blessings and cursings like a baptism or a child dedication, words are used to convey that spiritual power. These words are empowered as they're either used in obedience to God or Satan. When cultural forms are thus empowered, they convey, listen, they do not contain power. It's not a magic wand. In Scripture, we see God empowering things like the Ark of the Covenant, Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons, Jesus' gown, anointing oil, here, and the list goes on. But Satan also can empower cultural forms. One passage among many in which it's clear that God even recognizes the danger of satanic empowerment of objects and places is Joshua 7. There he commands Joshua to cancel that power by destroying all captured objects, tearing down all altars to pagan gods, and re-consecrating the whole land. 
So when oil is dedicated to God, it becomes a conduit for God's power. But it's also just symbolic. When you place oil on someone's forehead, not a ton, just a little bit, it's an outward physical sign that the Spirit of God is present. In the Old Testament, it was used to dedicate and consecrate things like priests, uh, uh, sacred furnishings for the temple and the tabernacle, and was used to actually anoint kings of Israel as a sign that God's blessing and Spirit was on them. Even in the New Testament, Jesus' close friends did this, you know, the apostles. It says in Mark 6 that they went out and preached all people should repent. They drove out demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. It's not medicine. It's a supernatural act here. But beyond all the oil stuff and, and the prayer, this is the, the important phrase. It says it was done, ready? In the name of the Lord. It means we are calling on the Lord to move, an appeal for God and His power. It demonstrates that the community doing it belongs to and gathers underneath the name and the banner of Jesus. The point is here, oil and people become the vessels God uses to heal. But it's still about God, His power, His action, not ours. James says this in James 5.15, And the prayer offered in faith will make a sick person well. And the Lord will raise him or her up. And if they sinned, they'll be forgiven. A prayer of faith. When a fervent request is offered in faith, when a wholehearted, unwavering commitment to God is seen, things, he says, will happen. But don't forget, this includes an honest acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. We in this church do not have faith in faith. We have faith in God and his will. Then he says the Lord will raise him up. Follow this. It's important for understanding and balance. You see, the promise is for the now and the not yet. Many times we should come to times like this and be expectant that people are going to be healed spiritually, freed from physical, emotional, mental bondage. We should come expectantly, not with attitudes like I've seen here before. Well, God, I, I know you're not going to move and you never really do move when I pray, so I'll ask sort of anyway because it's the right thing to do, so Lord, if it's your will, not really. God says, come with prayers of expectation and faith, but sometimes when God chooses not to heal, this is where other people go off the deep end. Maybe you've been in a church like this. Well, I'm sorry, John. You just weren't healed because you didn't have enough faith. Or here's the better one. If you had just prayed louder and stronger, God would have really heard you, right? No. We're told that the Lord will raise them up. And that is the promise in part now and fully in the coming resurrection. God's full healing will happen when we are raised up like Jesus was raised up. Yet James isn't done with us here today. He says, when a person comes forward, when in faith the leadership prays, then James says one needs to look at sin as the possible root for emotional, mental, sexual, spiritual, or physical ailment. He says, if they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Now, as seen, much of our suffering uh, is connected to sin, and much of it isn't. Not all of our weakness comes through our own personal sin. Yet the truth is, some of you sitting among us right now, that is the case. Confession is key in the process of real healing by God. So from unnatural strength to joy and suffering to the promises of God healing in the now and not yet, his desire to forgive us, James suddenly does something unexpected. He widens the circle and he says, prayer for healing is not just limited to leaders, elders, or, or pastors. No, no. We're all called to be involved. Therefore, he says, confess your sins to each other and, and pray for each other that you will be healed. 
One wrote, mutual confession of sin in his mind, that's James' mind, is a habitual practice. Why? Because it brings healing. While leaders do have unique spiritual authority among us, James makes clear that all believers, all believers have the privilege and the responsibility to be involved for prayers of healing. When a person comes into the light, uh, confesses and repents of sin, great power becomes on the scene. It comes on the scene. It's released. One ancient cry goes like this. Great is the power of repentance. It does bring healing. Isn't that what Jesus' best friend wrote in 1 John 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from some unrighteousness. No, all unrighteousness. Prayer. Real, empowered prayer. Real, spirit-led, spirit-filled prayer is what moves heaven and earth, what changes what cannot be changed. He says it right in this verse. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful, and it is effective. Now, a righteous person is a person committed to the will of God, a person who is cultivating the relationship with God, and by the way, here's the, here's the key phrase, ready? Actually knows God's heart actually knows God's heart, knows his will. This is unbelievably important when we talk about praying in faith. See, prayer is powerful and effective when it lines up with God's heart and his will. We see this pattern of permission in Jesus' life. Think about all the healings Jesus did. What did he do? He would go and listen to his Father first, line up his will with the Father's will, get permission, and then he would go out and he would what? Act. I was never taught this growing up in church. Oh God, maybe, possibly, if it's your will, I have no clue. Jesus says, be healed. And I go, well, what's the deal? Well, let me read a friend of mine who wrote this. Jesus prayed before his deeds. But what he did during them probably shouldn't be called prayer in the traditional sense. So referring to the part we are to play in God's healing ministry as praying for healing may even be a little misleading. We are to imitate Jesus and take authority as he did. Jesus said, whoever believes in me will do what I did. And so that includes his life. Watch. Like him, we are not supposed to ask God to do the works per se himself, but to go before the Lord, line up our wills with his, get permission, and then speak on his behalf and speak authoritatively to correct the situation. Those prayers are powerful. They are strong. They are mighty in operation. And they are effective. Effective is where we get our English word energy from. Prayer is powerful when it is energized by God's spirit. P.T. Forsyth wrote, wrote these words, Prayer is not mere wishing. Oh God, I hope. It's asking with will. It's energy. It's action. It is an act of faith. Here's a question this morning. Is C4 full of powerful, effective life-changing prayer, or is it really weak and lost and unenergized and ineffective? My observation is that there are pockets of fervent, travailing prayer in all different people, but overall, truly, overall, most of our children, most of our teenagers, most of our young adults, and even adults among us do not pray with real power, and the generations underneath the adults don't know how to because you've never shown them how. James says, to further his point, he says, look, you've you got to go back to holy history, to the Old Testament. He's already used Abraham, Rahab, and Job as examples, but now he turns to a story in 1 Kings 17 and 18 where God uses Elijah in the most powerful of ways. Yet notice how he talks about him. He says, well, listen, everyone. Elijah was just like a man like us. 
Yes, he was a prophet. Yes, he has a unique place in history, was the most powerful miracle worker in the Old Testament, and probably is the most often mentioned Old Testament character in the New Testament. But James says, by the way, everyone, before you call him saint, he just was a human, right? I mean, he got angry a lot, he was hungry, and oh, by the way, struggled probably with clinical depression. Yet his prayers created and ended a devastating drought. Prayer, he's about to say, changes reality, circumstances, the most overwhelming of situations. It says that he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. And he prayed again, and and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. I mean, what an amazing picture, right? Rain coming on the land that was dying. Is that not the picture of many of us here today? Desperate? Desperate? Dry? Dying in our faith? Here's the prayer, oh God, send your rain or we're done. Well, after a call to prayer to keep going, to be healed, to confess sin, to find freedom, he ends his letter quite abruptly, not like other letters. Unlike most others, he doesn't give greetings to certain people or churches or a benediction. He doesn't even give us a farewell blessing. James says, well, I've got one last shot at you, so I'm going to call you to one more thing. In love, he says, with very deep affection, he calls out these words, save those among you that are being redarkened. He has already said that the stuff that will kill your family, let alone a church, is sinful speech, disobedience, unconcern about others, worldliness, quarreling, the danger of money, arrogance, a lack of love for the things of God. And James points to sin and the great promise of freedom through forgiveness. My brothers and sisters, hear this. My brothers and sisters, if any of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring them back. Wander, by the way, is an active word. It means a pattern or lifestyle. We're called, we are responsible to care for each other in the areas of right belief and right practice. We're called in a very loving but firm way to correct people with unbiblical beliefs when they begin to live or act against the will of God. See, the real heartbeat of these last lines are really, in my opinion, for Christians who are wandering from the gospel, wandering from God's love and the things of God, whether in public or even in private. And so if a Christian has fallen into some habit of sin, some false doctrine, some sinful practice, we're commanded to go after them. And and here's the question. Why embarrass yourself? Why risk the relationship? Why do the awkward thing, the very un-Canadian thing, to talk about a personal life and religion? (laughs) James says, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save him from a death and cover over a multitude of sins. See, when they're fought for in prayer, in love, and in conversations, then life is given, sin is avoided, and death is overcome. Why does love cover a multitude of sins? It's not because it's blind. That's a lie. And it's not because it refuses to see faults. Real love does see all faults, but because it has the ability to forgive, which means in the deepest sense to know about the sin and never use it against the person anyway. And so at this moment, for this service at least, we come to the end of a series called A Normal Christian Life. And the question is this. What are we really called to do as a community? I mean, what did James teach us? Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Well, first of all, I think we're called to move beyond a formalized, controlled, comfortable church to a gathering of the Spirit. And that always means one thing, prayer. You that are suffering among us, you that are in trouble, 
As I said last week, and I encourage you if you weren't here, go back last week because we prayed one of the hardest prayers we've ever done as a church last week. Here's what he says. You are called to pray that you will sustain your faith in the middle of trouble, that you would have joy and patience and you would be able to sing in the worst of times. Many of you have been spending all your time praying, oh God, deliver me, when you should be praying, oh God, make me faithful. There's no escapism allowed here. That is where deep-rooted faith comes from. But then James says something else. He says, you know, if you're weak, not your circumstances, but if you are weak, come. Practice Christian vulnerability. And here's the battle for us right now. Everyone listen. Do not let arrogance and power politics and dissension and self-ability stop you from asking for God's freedom and God's blessing and God's presence. Do not deny the body of Christ its divine call to encourage, to use the gifts of heaven. Here's some examples of the many of us that need to be prayed over even today. Do you have a spiritually cold heart? Then you're weak. Do you have no joy in your Christian life? Some of you have been Christians for many years, but the word joy, the the candle we lit today in Advent, it is missing. There is no joy left in your faith. You need prayer. Do you you actually find no love for singing to God? Even in the shower, (laughs) you need prayer. Are you lukewarm? Do you have no will to read Scripture? No will to pray? I mean to really pray? No will to obey God? Do you struggle coming to church now? Do you even love the church anymore? Do, Do you have no love for the poor? Maybe you really just don't care that people are going to hell. You need prayer. Do you struggle with giving? How about physical sickness? How about emotional problems? What about financial problems? Maybe you have mental illness. Are, are you a defeated Christian? Are you holding on to anger or past statements made over you or about you last week, last year, or decades ago? You who are older among us, one of my great concerns for you is you have never, many of you, resolved things that still haunt you from 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And Jesus says, I don't want you to live like this anymore. Are you bitter? Are you unforgiving? Do you gossip? Is it pornography or lust? Is it gluttony, greed, pride? Are you involved in dark occultic practices? Are you involved in spiritual things God says no to you? Are you involved in a sin that just won't let you go? Do you see the demonic in you or or around you? Are, Are you doubting your faith? Do you live like you need to prove yourself to God and really, at the end of the day, you don't really trust in the work of Jesus to save you? You think it's up to you. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. And you need to come forward and say, I, need, I actually need you to forgive me, Jesus, and heal me in the deepest sense. Uh, remove all my sin and restore a relationship that I didn't even know I could have. But here's another question for us. What about your family? Do they need a fresh move from God? How's your marriage? Is it loveless? How are your family relationships? Are they broken? Do you have prodigal children? What about unsaved family members or, or spouses? What about a whole family? Maybe you're the only Christian. Yet it's not only about you and your family. Before we respond, let me say this clearly. Sometimes we're called to even go forward in the place of others, to stand in the gap. One wrote these words. Richard Foster points out that both Moses and Daniel, although innocent, identified themselves with the sins of their people. On Mount Sinai, Moses asked God to forgive them about the sins of the golden calf. And if God would not offer his own life, I mean, Daniel prayed, we have sinned and, and done wrong. You can add Nehemiah to the list. And then, of course, there's Jesus who identified with us unto death, right? 
James calls us as a community, as part of a normal Christian life, to put aside vain personal concerns and choose to willingly shoulder a responsibility not technically ours. That's where we become the community of the faithful. And so today, very simply, without manipulation, lights, just simply, today, we're not just going to hear the word, we're going to do the word. There are going to be elders right here and pastors and intercessors, the whole community, willing to pray. And I know this is radically un-North American, but when you choose, or if you choose to come forward and feel led, just sit with them and say, honestly, here's the sin, I confess it. Or honestly, here's the burden that I have for myself or my family or even this church or this area. And and we'll wait. And by the way, if this goes beyond the service today, we just don't care. It doesn't matter. We will pray for every person who wants to obey the scriptures like this. For you who don't feel you need to come forward genuinely, not because of fear, but you don't have anything. Take time to pray for those coming up. And the many of you watching and listening online, hear this this morning. We're not going to deny you either. Phone the office, set up a time, we'll even pray on the phone or or on Skype with you. But I want to say this this morning. It is so important that we come to the place at Crothers Creek that we understand that God is living and active and he is here. And we need to start obeying his commands because when we obey things like this, healing comes. We find relief. We find comfort. We find support. And then the implication of that is people around us will go, truly, there is a difference. The great brilliance of our movement is that God chooses to use normal people like us to show the gospel. The danger of that is it's up to our lives to reflect it. My challenge to you as a friend, a fellow journeyer, and a pastor is this. You have the opportunity to simply come and be anointed with oil this morning and pray for healing. Pray for your family's healing. Pray for a situation that you cannot handle. Come and obey and be restored. This is the will of God or he would have not put it in scripture. So why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll see what the Lord does among us. Simply put. So Lord, we come to you at this moment right now. And I know right now uh, there is fear and question and all sorts of stuff going on. But I just ask you at this moment to come among us. Come among us. God, there's so much hurt in this church, so much pain, so much sin, so much question, and not just in our own lives, in our family lives, in our church life, and then, of course, there's just a whole region that's lost. So my prayer right now is this, and I feel you've given me permission to do this. Spirit of God, now come. Bring the Lord Jesus' presence among us, and just do your work, no matter what it will look like. And in faith, Lord, we pray you'd fill us and change. And I ask you, God, right now, would you heal people, set people free, and may you do a new work in this church. We need you to clean the very essence of who we are so we'll be ready for your next move. I ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for his glory. And all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca.